morning. Well, again, this is a different scripture passage for us as we've been preaching through the narrative lectionary this year. It's a story that you may or may not know. I have, for the first time in my life, provided you a glossary in the back of the bulletin, sort of a who's who's list, because I'm not going to stop in the middle of the passage and explain who these people are, nor are you going to do that the same as I'm reading it. But later on at some point, you'll see who's who is in this story. A moment of personal privilege. I remember when I was back in seminary, we had speech class. You had speech, Jen, right? Yep. Dr. Bill Beaners. Nope. He was long retired by you. Dr. Bill Beaners, I think he had acted on Broadway sometime. He was a he was a New York guy. And this was the passage that he had us do a dramatic reading. I mean really dramatic reading. I remember him yelling at me getting to get on my knees at one point in this passage. I can't remember exactly. But I had some traumatic experiences. Did you have Beaners, you had beaners, right? Yeah, I had some traumatic experiences with this passage. It didn't damage me at all. But it's memorable in its drama. I think the story is actually fairly self-contained in the context of the succession of kings in Israel's life, or the divided kingdom's life, a rivalry between the prophet Elijah and the false gods, those who followed after the Baals. So let's open our hearts and minds and ears to this portion of God's word to us. And it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that he said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but rather you and your father's house in your forsaking the Lord's commands and going after the Baalim. And now send out, gather for me all Israel at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. And Ahab sent out among all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. And Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you keep hopping between the two crevices? If it's the Lord God, go follow him. And if it's Baal, go follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. And Elijah said to the people, I alone remain a prophet of the Lord, and the prophets of Baal are 450 men. Let them give us two bulls, and let them choose for themselves one bull, and cut it up, and put it on the wood. But let them set no fire, and I on my part will prepare the other bull, and put it on the wood, but I will set no fire." And you shall call in the name of your God, and I on my part will call in the name of the Lord. And it shall be that the God who answers with fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, The thing is good. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls for yourselves and go first, for you are the many. And call in the name of your God, but set no fire. And they took the bull that he had given him, And they prepared it and called in the name of Baal from morning to noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and none answering. And they hopped about on the altar that he had made. And it happened at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out in a loud voice, for he is a god. Perhaps he is chatting or occupied or off on a journey. 
Perhaps he is sleeping and will awake. And they called out in a loud voice and gouged themselves with swords and spears, as was their wont, till blood spilled on them. And it happened, as the morning passed, that they prophesied until the hour of the afternoon offering. But there was no voice, and none answering, and none hearing. And Elijah said to all the people, Draw near me. And all the people drew near him, and he mended the wrecked altar of the Lord. And Elijah took twelve stones, like the number of the tribes of Jacob's sons, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And he built with the stones an altar in the name of the Lord, and made a trench wide enough for two measures of seed around the altar. And he laid out the wood, and cut up the bowl, and put it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jugs with water, and pour it on the offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water went round the altar, and the trench, too, was filled with water. At the hour of the afternoon offering, Elijah the prophet approached and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, this day let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. And by your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that it is you who turn their heart backward. And the Lord's fire came down and consumed the offering and the wood and the dirt and the water that was in the trench, it licked up. And all the people saw and fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Elijah was surely one of the most heroic figures in the entire Bible. Do we even have heroes anymore? Elijah Cummings. There you go. There you go. Think about it. Who else did you want to grow up to be like? Maybe it was JFK, or maybe John Glenn, or maybe Steve Jobs, or maybe Michael Jordan. Maybe it was Marie Curie, or Jackie Kennedy, or Madeleine Albright, or Condoleezza Rice, or how about Johnny Unitas, right? With his super accurate throwing arm, his black high top spikes, and his workmanlike cool as a cucumber way about him in the toughest of football games. What was so important or captivating or attractive about these people that drew you to them? Was it their wisdom or their intelligence or the charisma or their fortitude or their courage or their strength? The fact that they were at the right place at the right time with all the requisite skills and abilities to meet the challenges at hand? Well, of all the Bible heroes in Hebrew scripture, no one stands out like Elijah, bar none. Not even Moses can fit the bill like Elijah. No one else is revered in such a specific way, whose return would mark the final triumph of God over all the powers of evil in the world, and whose presence was marked by an inexplicable aura, as though he had come from another world. You remember that Elijah does not die, but is carried off into heaven by the chariot's and horses of fire as he's mentoring his successor, Elisha. 
So Elijah is always ready to come back. Stories told about Elijah are bound to be special and none more so than this one. As I mentioned, this is the first time I've provided a glossary in the back of the bulletin, so you can make sure you know something about all this cast of characters. And I do so because this story is important enough not to be left with a who's who after it's all said and done. It's important to have a sense of all the characters in this story, in this drama, because that is exactly what it is. It is a very dramatic story for a very good reason. Now, we're moving very quickly through the Bible in our narrative lectionary this season, and it's important, I think, to know how it is that we got to this passage today. This story, like many of Hebrew scripture, has a huge and complex history of its own. Set during the reign of King Ahab, nine generations after King Solomon, who was David's son, we are squarely into the time of the kings, when few of us can keep track of who's who, and their respective reigns are marked more by their failings than by their faithfulness. Though the title of the book is Kings, First and Second Kings, the counterpoint to these narratives comes mostly from the various prophets who call the rulers to tasks to turn them from idolatry to faithfulness and from self-aggrandizement to justice. This scene is truly a high point in scripture, and not just by virtue of the elevation of Mount Carmel, which is nearly 1,800 feet high, standing just north of the modern city of Haifa. Mountains are places where important things happen in scripture. Just as Moses received the Ten Commandments and Jesus was transfigured on a mountain, this scene captures the heightened importance of the defeat of the prophets of Baal at this critical point in the story of God's people. There is stark symbolism and irony in this story. The god Baal was known as a weather god, responsible for providing ample rain for harvests in this harsh and arid climate. This story occurs in the midst of drought, when the rain is badly needed. Baal was not doing its job. And the prophet Elijah's challenge only makes things worse. He readily taunts the prophets about their no-show God and marks Baal's apparent impotence. It's time to put up or shut up. The contest between Elijah and the prophets to see whose God was real is won clearly by Elijah, hands down. Starting out early in the morning, the prophets of Baal pull out all the stops to get their candidates sacrificial bull ablaze. They dance around the altar until their feet are sore. They shout themselves hoarse, chanting desperate encouragement along the way. They jab at themselves with knives, thinking that the sight of blood might start things moving if anything can, but they might as well have saved themselves the trouble. Although it was like beating a dead horse, Elijah couldn't resist getting in a few digs. Shout louder. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Or maybe Baal's just left for the weekend. Or maybe he's taking a nap. The prophets then whip themselves into even greater frenzies at this goading, but by mid-afternoon, the sacrificial offering had begun to get a little bit rancid, and there was still no sign of fire from above. Then it was Elijah's turn to show what Yahweh could do. He was like a magician getting ready to pull a rabbit out of a hat. First, he had a trench dug around the altar, filled it with water, 
Then he got a bucket brigade going to give the bull a good dousing too. Then as soon as they'd finished, he got them to do it again for good measure one more time. By the time they'd finished that third go-around, the whole place was awash, and Elijah looked as if he'd just finished a swim. Then he gave Yahweh the word to show his stuff and jumped back just in time. Lightning flashed. The water in the trench fizzed like a spit on a hot stove. Nothing was left of the offering but just a pile of ashes and a smell like the 4th of July. The victory was decisive. The onlookers were beside themselves with enthusiasm, and at the signal from Elijah, they slaughtered the false prophets down to the last one. Nobody could say whose victory was greater, Yahweh's or Elijah's. Now, it's a story that never really loses its drama, but at the same time, it is troublesome and problematic in its own way. Nobody has a problem with Yahweh burning up the offering and Baal being a dud, The issue comes afterwards, which is not included in our lectionary passage for today. Just a couple quick lines. When all 450 prophets of Baal are slaughtered. I know folks in the narrative lectionary group that's going on have a real issue, have a real problem with this one. And I want to comment on that. There are two ways I look at it. As you read the story, it's pretty interesting that it's just one line that inserts this that These prophets are slaughtered, and then it moves on to what seems to be more important in the story, that Elijah is the one who provides the rain. And the story then goes with Elijah showing King Ahab this little bitty cloud off in the distance that's going to pour down rain, and Ahab doesn't believe it. And then the rains come because of what Elijah has prophesied. That seems to be more important than the slaughtering of the folks the prophets of Baal. The other thing that always happens in my mind in the issues of holy violence in Hebrew scripture is in the liturgy that I grew up in in the United Church of Christ, when we'd have the assurance of pardon, the line from Ezekiel was used every single Sunday. And I memorized it, and I think I played the pastor doing it back and forth with the people. As it says in Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from their way and live. You can remember every Sunday thinking, ooh, how wicked have I been this past week? Uh-oh, uh-oh, am I that wicked? I hope not. That's what I do with signs of holy violence in the Old Testament. The other thing that happens in this whole passage of Scripture that I deal with is the extremity of it all. And the fact that The best of the biblical scholars say that this story was finally written down, as many were, about 400 years after it occurred. So you can look in some ways at this story like the legends of George Washington tossing a silver dollar across the Delaware. I had to look that up this week. It might have been the Rappahannock. You can do it across the Rappahannock, but you can't really do it across the Delaware. Who knew? Or Paul Revere single-handedly shouting to the folks up in Boston that the British are coming and the British are coming. You read the story, and actually he was one of three or maybe four, and he made a shorter journey than others. And the reason that he's famous is the poet Longfellow, I guess, wrote the poem in 1869, and Paul Revere's last name rhymes better than the other ones. Dawes, I guess. So who knows? Embellishment happens, which is, I think, part of the theme for our day today. Embellishment does 
happen. And here we are on this All Saints Sunday, and we're called to remember those people in our lives who we remember with love and care and devotion. And I'm preparing, not this next week, the 16th, I'm preparing to do a service for my Uncle John, who passed away a couple weeks ago, thinking about stories for him and remembering stories that we shared about my Aunt Sue, who passed away a couple weeks ago as well. Aunt Sue, who lived on the farm her whole life, was unflappable. My cousin Bill once got his leg caught in some farm machinery that didn't go so well. The story goes, Aunt Sue had him in the front of the car and the tourniquet was around his leg, and all she did was sing hymns on the way to the hospital because she was a pianist at church and she knew all was going to be okay, and Bill was kind of crying in pain. She just kept singing away and singing away, knowing Ella would be well. I remember my Uncle John, he was the one who taught me how to handle a firearm at my other uncle's house up at Lake Naomi. And when I was, oh boy, about eight, I guess, he talked about the sacredness of that weapon and how that you needed to treat it like a baby and with such care and how dangerous it was. I remember that. I remember the whole episode. I'm sure we're going we're gonna to do that one again. There are times in our lives where we look back and we remember how it was that that person stood out in our lives and what that moment was for us. And we probably, we most assuredly, glorify it in some way. But that doesn't take any of the meaning of it away. I think we glorify it in a way that kind of helps us remember and reinforce what was really important about it for us. So for us this morning, we both look ahead in our own lives to think how it is that we might be affecting someone else. How is it that we live our lives that either our children or our friends, other family, how is it that they look at us and see something in our lives that is really important? that is really core about who we are and how we choose to live following the God of love in Jesus Christ. How do we do that? And then we also remember, and this morning we will remember, those who have gone before us to give thanks for their lives, for their faithfulness, for their journeys, knowing that without their journeys, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be who we are. So we gather together as God's people, and we give thanks, and we share a remembrance of the one who gave his life for us. So as we worship, we give thanks to God.